so we're we're there we're under a chandelier made of dungeons and dragons dice like the whole chandelier is d20s and it's beautiful and it's all crystalline and i i said look you're our cleric and then i turned to somebody else and i'm like you're our bard and i turned to someone else you're our paladin like these are the roles you have in the team these are the roles that fit your pa- personalities and your skill sets obviously the bard was the person who was our key communicator and storyteller um, you know, and, and I explained to them, you all have these different roles and sometimes that's all you need to take care of a problem. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, president and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Kimberly Price, strategic security consultant, Black Hat Content Review Board member, former senior director of product security at New Relic, former principal security manager at Microsoft. You get the idea. Kim has held a variety of roles in our industry, but with one common theme. Kim is an outstanding team builder. She has moved around the various facets of cybersecurity over her career, but always with an eye towards turnarounds, creating new teams, and most importantly, integrating those teams with the rest of the business. Kim is the sort of professional whom companies design job roles for, as what she does is both amazing and necessary. Kim, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Howdy, partners. There we go. (laughs) There we go. Howdy, y'all. So let's start with the basics, Kim. What are the hallmarks of an excellent team? Well... It's funny because uh, everyone thinks of a team differently. Uh, A lot of people are like, I'm going to hire all these great rock stars. And um, my goal is to create a super group. So I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Traveling Wilburys, but it's this super group of like um, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, George Harrison. Like These are superstars in their own right. And so one of the things that I look for in a great team is that um, team willingness where they're excited to make each other sound great and not just focusing all on themselves. So there's there's that aspect to it. But there's also a, an aspect of diversity and trust. Uh, those are Those are the three things is teamwork, diversity, and trust. And and when I say diversity, I, um, I mean, you know, the Fellowship of the Rings wasn't nine elves. You need different skill sets and different backgrounds to, to flesh each other out. If everybody is good at the same stuff, nobody's covering the, the gaps and the weaknesses. And so it's, it's both about diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that you, that you hear about coming from our HR partners and executive leadership. But it's also about skill sets. Maybe you need a program manager or a documentation specialist or a communications pro um, along with your security engineers um, because you don't, you don't want security engineers writing documentation. They hate doing it. They're not good at it. And you're paying them to be doing engineering work, not writing documents. So, I mean, th- those are my three. Those are my three things diversity. Uh, oh, and I barely even talked about trust, but that ties back into the aspect of teamwork. So I had a team once. Gather around the campfire, kids. It's story time. Um, I had a team <laughs> once that I was asked to take over and they were 
dysfunctional. They never had team meetings. They didn't have one-on-ones with their boss. They all worked, this was pre-COVID, they all worked in the same hallway and would email each other instead of talking to each other. And nobody could cover for each other. They all had what they did. And so it was like swim lanes where nobody got in each other's swim lane. And I spent a year getting them over the fact that we're going to have team meetings and they're going to be weekly and we're going to talk about what we're working on with each other. And, um, but it was really hard to get them through the, you need to teach each other what you're doing. We have no redundancy. One of, one of the team members, if they went on a vacation, they would call in one day of the week to handle deliverables that nobody else knew how to do. And I'm like, this isn't right. Like, people should be able to take vacation. What if, what if one of you wins the lottery and never comes back? Like, we won't know how to do it. And they're like, oh, yeah, cross-training. Gotcha, boss. And they wrote up a, a – each of them wrote up a quick little document and spent like an hour showing one other person on the team how to do it. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's kind of like the minimum viable teamwork I was going for. So finally – I took them for a holiday morale event. I think I'd been managing the team about a year at this point. And they were getting better, but like we hadn't made the leap that I really wanted to see and that I could see was possible. Um, and so we went, to, uh, we went to a holiday luncheon at a local board game uh, restaurant where you can like check out board games and then sit in the restaurant and play them. Um, but everyone was going to be leaving straight from lunch for their various flights home for the holidays. And, um, so we're, we're there, we're under a chandelier made of Dungeons and Dragons dice. Like the whole chandelier is D twenties and it's beautiful and it's all crystalline. And I, I said, look, you're our cleric. And then I turned to somebody else and I'm like, you're our bard. And I turned to someone else. You're our paladin. Like, these are the roles you have in the team. These are the roles that fit your personalities and your skill sets. Obviously, the bard was the person who was our key communicator and storyteller. Um, you know, and, and I explained to them, you all have these different roles. And sometimes that's all you need to take care of a problem. But we have OKRs this semester, this quarter, this half year, whatever your business planning cycle may be. But ours were semesters. We have OKRs, and those are the big boss. I need everyone on the team working together to address how are we going to shift this goal by 25% in the next six to 12 months. And I could see the light bulb go off for most of them. One of them was not a D&D person. So I'm like, all right. Iron Man is awesome, but sometimes he needs Thor. And then it, then I had the whole team. Then they got it. It was like, oh, okay, right. It doesn't mean any one of us is less awesome. And it required a level of vulnerability and trust for them. And I remember about a month and a half later, one of the most I-have-to-do-it-all-myself people on the team um, I, I initially had thought they were just a control freak. And then I realized um, they feel accountable to the customers they work with and they've been burned before. And so that's why they're holding on control because that's the only way they're comfortable 
with the level of service they can provide. And, and so I could see that trust building in the team. And I remember the day they said in a team meeting, I have a presentation next week to this partner and, uh, I finished my slides, but I know, and they, they turned to another person on the team. You're really good at slides. Would you be able to take a look at them and help me like make them really great? And you know, you can't cry in a team meeting, but I was so happy. I, I'm like, right. I was so, that went on my one-on-one with my boss the next week where I'm like, we had a breakthrough. We had a big breakthrough in team trust. They're actually working together. And, and all of a sudden, those OKRs started getting knocked down because it was a, it was a multi-team approach to how are we going to accomplish this? Um, it was phenomenal. So trust, trust matters. That's really cool. So, okay. So we've talked about a lot of this about kind of internal perspective, right? How do they conduct themselves internally? We've got trust, we've got diversity, we've got camaraderie, we've got the, the Avengers or the, or the D and D squad, whichever (laughs) way you want to go. How about with how they conduct themselves, uh, with the rest of the business? Like what are some of the external hallmarks of, of a really excellent team in terms of their interfacing with the rest of the business? Yeah. So Security is so often the nanny, the police force. I mean, and we even do it with our imagery. We're all about shields and locks and, you know, military metaphors. And uh, we are the house of no. We're always showing up with our partners and telling them, no, you can't do that. Right. And from the most basic operant conditioning perspective, there's reinforcements and there's punishments Mm -hmm. and we're all about the and you can think of them as carrots and sticks we're all about the sticks yeah policies compliance regulations like getting reported for clicking a phishing link exactly exactly I, i read on linkedin recently some company has set up a wall of shame for employees that get caught in the in the internal phishing exercise and i'm just like That's awful. It's so bad. Um, And so uh, I I gave a talk, I gave a keynote at LocoMocoSec in 2022 about how we're failing at DevSecOps because of this, um, because of a lot of things, because of, you know, we're throwing engineers at all the problems. Like when every, when, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so we just keep throwing engineers at problems when not all of our problems are engineering in in security and and development um but dino daizovi also gave a keynote and i loved that our talks built off of each other not going to say that was an accident because it wasn't we met for coffee ahead of time and made sure that we weren't duplicating content but also that we riffed off each other and one of the things that he talked about was sdl is dead long live sdx it's all about building those uh, easy paths for the developers, the golden pathway where, sure, you could go off-roading, but why would you? There's a six-lane interstate with, like, you know, it's the Autobahn, basically. Why would you go off-road? But, hey, if you want to go off-road, your security team is here to help you. Um, and, and I loved that perspective around how do you make it easy for developers so I came home from LocoMocoSec, and that became the foundation of the security program I was running, which is the Secure Developer Experience. And we had, 
you know, you build different modules for it because it is just a rebranding of secure developer lifecycle with everything from policy and governance through to response. But you're building it with a perspective of how do I make this easy for for the development team or the engineers and going and getting their feedback, being pragmatic, understanding what tools do they use now and how do we integrate into those so that it's easy? Because one of the biggest disservices that we have done to the security industry is um, treat it like we're an untouchable special snowflake when in reality, we're just QA. We're just, we're just quality. We're just a quality function. And so when I talk to the, you know, the product architects and I'm saying, hey, what are your quality initiatives? We'd like to get involved in those because quality code is reliable. Quality code is accessible. Quality code is well-documented. Quality code is secure. So how do we just fold into your existing processes? Oh, you have a change design document process every time you're working on a new feature? How do we build threat modeling into that in a really low friction way that enables the engineers to have a framework of thinking, what could go wrong with this this. design? I love this. Yeah. And so looking, looking through it from a, how do we make it easy for them perspective? And uh, it's funny because when most engineering teams aren't used to this, And so the first two, three, maybe four times they have to meet with security, they're defensive and they're expecting the worst and they're guarded and they don't want to talk to you because you're always there to tell them what they've done wrong or what they're not allowed to do versus solving problems. Right. Jointly jointly solving problems, right. right? Like that's the whole idea is locking arms. Well, and part of why we're stuck in this in this problem is our tooling. And by our tooling, I mean security tooling. Whether it's DAST, DAST, SCA, your own internal fuzzer, your secret scanning tool, all of those output into their own proprietary dashboard, which engineers don't look at. And so security teams have to look at them. Or maybe the security team has automated ticketing in your JIRA or your Azure DevOps or whatever you're, you're doing. Maybe those findings get automatically ticketed. But the problem is security teams spend way too much time being bug nannies, chasing down bugs, chasing down security teams, or bickering back and forth on, does this have to be fixed or not? Like, why is this critical? I don't think it's critical. We don't actually use that part of the open source component. Yes, we use the library, but we don't use the vulnerable component. Right, right. Contextualizing um, CVSS scores. This is something I just went through this week, and the team was shocked to discover that I was like, yeah, no, that one doesn't matter. That one doesn't matter. That one doesn't matter. I'm not in the product prevention business, I told them. Howdy, y'all. Alan Alford here to tell you about Alan Alford Consulting. After being a CISO five times, I decided to launch my own cybersecurity consulting practice. My cybersecurity career has spanned companies ranging from five to 50,000 employees, with revenues ranging from $2 million on up to $10 billion. I have worked in the cybersecurity industry itself, telecommunications, manufacturing, education, legal, data services, defense contracting, and for a number of SaaS providers as well. What I can do for your organization is to help you better manage, measure, report on, and more importantly, execute on your cybersecurity program. I have helped clients employ cybersecurity frameworks, 
conduct maturity assessments, develop board reports, and even to draft comprehensive three-year plans with budget and headcount projection to meet compliance and maturity goals. I can help you with anything from an assessment to comprehensive execution. I also offer retainer packages. Find out more at allenalford.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. Right. And so I've, I had a situation where um, I, I, I worked in a team where a bunch of the schools were broken. And when we repaired them, release the hounds, the, the tech debt got discovered and ticketed. Nice. And it was it was big and it was painful. And um, so as a security team, releasing bugs in waves versus dumping a thousand bugs overnight is one of the important things you need to think about. How do you yes. how do you pre-triage? Because if you tell your dev team they have to speed run Mount Everest, they're just not going to. They're not even gonna try. They're gonna be like, well. We accept that risk. Uh, we're not going. And but if you're like, all right, we're going to go to base camp one. Oh, hey, look, here's base camp two. Like, and and you start working your way there. You make it bite sized chunks. That's that's the only way you'll get there. So you've got to break that down. And so, sorry, I, I was just going to say this dev team did a phenomenal job. They got through all but like the last three bugs, and they wanted a business risk exception to not fix them. Um, and, you know, we had a conversation about it. The reality is they were actively working on the new thing that would deprecate these vulnerabilities anyway, but it was outside of SLA that that was going to be finished. And, and you know, we went through the, the risk analysis, not only the risk of the vulnerabilities, but the risk to the business, the time cost what it would cost if we brought in staff augmentation to do the work. Like we looked at all the options and then we signed off on risk. But then I turned around to my exploit engineer and said, all right, these three bugs we just signed off on. Can you sometime in the next week or two, when you have a free moment, help me sleep a little better at night and just go do your worst with them. I didn't, I didn't unleash the exploit engineer on all the whole huge ginormous backlog because that doesn't scale. It was just the final three. And fortunately, they were able to say, yeah, these two, heat death of the sun is more likely to happen than that getting exploited. But this third one, not only should they fix it, not only is it exploitable, they don't actually have to update the library. They could just change this one line of code and and I can help them do it. Nice. That is what you want to be doing is actually having the capacity to have those value add talks that unblock the business versus just chasing down bug after bug after bug after bug like that's that's not adding value and and so that's one of the pivots we need to make is how do we get security bugs into the everyday operations of the dev team so it's just another bug that they fix. I stopped calling them vulnerabilities and just started calling them security bugs because engineers know they're accountable for bugs. You call it a vulnerability. Now it's a security problem. Maybe the security engineers should fix it. And it's like, we don't know your code base the way you know your code base. It's just a bug. We're happy to consult with you on if the fix is works, if it's sufficient, but 
you, trust me, you don't want us in your code. Yeah, this this is why I call it DevOps and not DevSecOps, right? As soon as you yeah. create the Sec as a separate thing, it everybody starts to treat it like a separate thing. The whole point is, no, 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 no. Good DevOps is secure DevOps. We just need to call it DevOps. We don't have to add the Sec as its own little. Well, tag, I right, I hate the ter- I hate the whole principle of DevSecOps. I think the the whole shift left. The reason the reason. Uh, engineers love the idea of DevSecOps is because they hate security. They don't want to have to deal with us. And they're like, no, shift left, just give us the tools. But the reality is the tools aren't integrated in their workflows. And they're not security engineers. They don't know how to interpret the outputs because the outputs are designed for security teams, not for developers. And so think about a software component analysis tool that gives you a finding for every CVE in an open source library where really your one action item might be fix these three libraries and you will clear up 42 CVEs. I don't need, I don't need 42 bug tickets. I need three bug tickets that tell me this, but fix this, it will clear up 18 CVEs. Yeah. And that's, that's it. It's coordination and cooperation. It, it, it takes both sets of eyes, right? Like, yeah. But, but to your point about the shift left too, name a single engineer on planet Earth who wants to have security tools plugged into their IDE. Well, and also name a single developer on Earth that's actually gold on the security of their code. They're not. They're, they're gold on what they ship. And so at the end of the day, you know, they're not, their review doesn't matter how many bugs were in their code. Honestly, it doesn't even matter if a breach occurs because they misconfigured something. They're not getting in trouble. They're not getting fired. In fact, the security team will get in trouble for not having found it sooner. And so there's this perverse incentive where the people accountable for the code quality um, aren't actually accountable when it comes to performance. And I'm not I'm not saying we should fire more engineers for making mistakes. That's not it at all. But we've got this, again, coming back to behavioral psychology models, if you never get the feedback loop, if if you wrote the vulnerability but somebody else has to fix it, you never get the feedback that your code had a problem. And so there's there's just this breakdown in the in the feedback loop and in the reporting mechanisms because no one ever ties a bug to the person who implemented it. It, it goes back to the team and then everyone gets real hand wavy. But how does that help the engineer learn? Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing the, the the cartoon where the guy is strolling and whistling, and behind him is the massive swath of destruction that he's completely oblivious to as he keeps strolling and whistling. It's that's the culture you're creating when you don't close that feedback loop, right? Like. It's important to look back over your shoulder and go, whoa, did I have a hand in all that? Because that sure seems to be an awful lot of destruction behind me. Right. And so most most companies are not at a point of engineering maturity where they would even consider or have the capacity to create a feedback dashboard for engineers. Like, there there comes a point where data-driven business models, everyone gets real skittish when it's like, oh, you're you're gonna show individual developers 
bugs. Like, and, and then you get back to punishment. You're back to the wall of shame. And so, you know, how do you build um, reward models that reward people for doing the right thing versus punishing them for doing the wrong thing? And so um, I, gave a, I gave a talk several years ago about this carrot and stick model and how motivating insecurity is complicated and hard, but we work in security, everything is hard. That's our job. And so some people are really motivated by personal growth and development. They want that star on their training dashboard to be like, I have completed this series of internal training courses on security and I fixed X number of security bugs within SLA and the security team sent me and my boss, uh, you know, thumbs up reward. You know, I got, maybe it's just like a $5 Starbucks card for doing a great job. Maybe it was just recognition this quarter as a security superstar, you know, the, the frequent flyer, you did good stuff reward. And other people are motivated by external competition where I want to compete with my with my colleagues. I want to be right, king of the right. king of the hill or queen of the hill. Right. And so gamification, um, gamification is is feasible in security. I've seen it done badly by typically engineers who are like, I play video games. I can do this. And it's like, mm, it's a skill set. It takes training. Like there's there's a reason the people who do game development, the people who build word processors are different. Like, um, it's, it's, you know, gamification is similar to gambling and intermittent reinforcement versus consistent reinforcement versus like you, you actually want someone with a social sciences, um, background or training to help you design it also to avoid perverse incentives where people are like, Oh, I can uh, game the system and yeah. I can get points without actually I, I doing can create a hundred bugs and fix them. And I win the game. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I saw, I saw uh, an event at black hat where uh, you had to collect from around the space, three things, and then you could go turn them in for a fourth premium thing. And once a few people were at this event, I saw them like, hey, here, take my three things, go get your premium thing and then come back and give me my three things back. It was basically a replay attack. People weren't going and picking up the three things on their own. They were just taking their friends' three things. Right, right. And I'm like, yeah, people- So all the original three things are still wherever they are. Yeah, yeah. People will game the system and, and that's what a good gamification person will help you identify is- all right. How do we keep our losses to a minimum? Well, and, and you talk about the strategic perspective um, of gamification and you talk about, you know, you mentioned carrot versus stick, right? One thing I used to do, and I, I, it took me a while, I used to report into the EVP of engineering on the security progress of every product line under, under his purview. So every one of his VPs had multiple product lines. And here I was reporting on the security status across the board, high and low, you know, Hall of Fame, but also Wall of Shame all in one report, right? And I very quickly learned that's not the way to go about it. What I started doing was an organic variance chart. And what it shows is the delta from the last time it was reported to where it is now. And your overall gray bar might have been very, very tall, meaning you had a boatload of security bugs still in your hopper. But if your green bar 
was dramatically large, showing you had reduced dramatically from the last reporting time. You got rewarded for your deltas, and that way, the 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 wall of shame part of it, there's always going to be a bottom five. It's okay, right? Like like we focused on the top five, and it it became a contest in the VPs ranks to I want a bigger green bar this quarter. I want a bigger green bar this quarter, and it it took a while to figure it out. But gamification works even at that level. Absolutely, and. Talking about executive reporting, I find they're really interested in trends. Like, don't tell me what happened this month. Tell me how that compares to the prior six months. How does that compare to the last year? Am I doing better? Am I doing worse? Um, and projections. Uh, you know, the the over the last six months, your average inbound bug rate is X. Your average uh, resolved bug rate is Y at this rate. You will never clear your backlog. It is in fact growing, or it's you're you're going right. You're going to clear your backlog, but it's going to take you six years. You could accelerate it by this, this, or this. Um, and so they're really interested in trends. They're also really interested in root causes. So a lot of a lot of security teams are reporting on bugs, but because the bug tracker doesn't have discrete fields. So this comes back. So this is, sorry, side tangent rant here. I see a lot of bug trackers that are great for developers. The challenge is there are some specific fields security teams need. And so how do you design your, your tracking system where not every bug gets every field filled out, but like, here's the security tab where security wants to know what is the CWE. We want to know what is the root cause of that vulnerability. We want to know the security impact. Is it elevation of privilege or is it information disclosure? We want to know that CVSS score. We don't just want critical, high, medium, low. We, we, we need these extra fields. And then we can produce these rich reports for our product executives and our IT executives that says, hey, yeah, your bug counts are up. They're all in one specific team. Or, hey, your bug counts are up. Specifically, cross-site scripting vulnerabilities or specifically buffer overflow or specifically um, your secret handling is problematic. Right. So, so, so we're going to teach you guys secrets management or we're going to teach you guys what unbounded variables are, you know, what, exactly. what they are and why they're a problem. Or we're going to teach you, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you're giving them something, a problem to solve versus right. just you're bad. Mm -hmm. you're and, bad. And you're offering you part of that solution too, right? You're, you're, you're coming and saying buffer overflows is your problem. We're going to teach you how to bound variables, right? We're going to teach right. you why that matters. Like we're here to help. Or, hey, I see that this is a problem for y'all. Um, I've reallocated my security architect to do a two-week deep dive with you to identify mitigations that we could implement that would blunt the impact of these vulnerabilities um, and, and you know, provide an, an extra safety layer. Or, you know, there's, there's a, a richer conversation to be had. The challenge is getting that data. If your root cause is unstructured data in a freeform text field, you can't run reports on it. Um, so uh, thinking about how you capture your security bug data really, truly does matter. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, listen, Kim, thank you so 
much. This has been a lively conversation. This is so good. I, I love talking to people with a real AppSec background. We do so much enterprise on this show, and we neglect the app side of the house too often. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise, your skill, your talent, your knowledge, wow. and everything else you brought to the table. You're welcome. I want to point out for the folks that are thinking mostly enterprise, your enterprise and your AppSec teams absolutely intersect. And and I want to... So think about your employee base and how they access your product data. And uh, that's where your enterprise and your AppSec teams absolutely need to be working together because you need access control for your employees to access the customer data. And so if your enterprise and AppSec teams aren't talking, they should be. They should absolutely be. And there's tips and tricks, right? What we talked about, about don't dump the massive amount of bugs on the dev team. It's the same thing as don't run your... Uh, annual vulnerability scan and then dump every vulnerability on the IT team. Like it's the same story. There's so many techniques that we can be leveraging yeah. in common here, right? Yeah. Don't file bugs on Friday. That's a good one. Like some of those bugs will be critical. They'll have an SLA that your engineers are set up for failure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If it's being publicly exploited, then go ahead and file it. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. But, no, there's there's some good general guidelines there for sure. Kim, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. This has been fantastic. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.